0: Alrighty, Hi. Welcome. Welcome so much. Thank you so much for being here. It's such a busy point in the semester. I am thrilled that you are all here. I'm Dr. Mara Gubar. I'm a professor in the literature section here at MIT. Um, and I'm assistant director of the MIT Communications Forum, which is sponsoring this event. And I am so excited to welcome you guys here for um, a conversation about all things tween. Um, so I'll start by explaining the format of the Com forum. For those of you who have not been here, we will have one hour of moderated conversation. I will ask questions of our panelists, who I will introduce in a second. I'm so excited they are here to join us. And after that, at 6, we will pause for a second. And any of you who need to run should feel free at that point to exit the room. Don't feel abashed. We understand. Um, But for the rest of you, from from 6 to 7, we will have an opportunity for you to ask questions of our panelists, and those are what those microphones are for, so that when we conclude, I'll ask you to step up to the microphones and get in line, and, and you can ask your questions at the microphone. Um, okay, so that's a note about format. And now I can introduce our two wonderful panelists who work on youth culture. I'm so excited they are here. First, we have Dr. Meryl Alper. She's an assistant professor of communication studies at Northeastern University. And before that, she actually worked on the production end of tween culture. She worked um, at places like Nickelodeon and Disney, so we're definitely gonna talk to her about that. Um, and now that she's a professor, she's also a faculty associate at the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard Um, and she's the author of two books one is out and the other forthcoming I think Um, the first one is digital youth with disabilities and it came out from our own MIT press in 2014 and the one she's still working on that's gonna come out is called giving voice mobile communication disability and inequality and that's coming out also from MIT so you must have had a good experience the first time okay (laughs) good in 2017 So that's Dr. Alper. Then we have Dr. Tyler Bickford, um, who is an assistant professor at the University of Pittsburgh. His PhD was actually in music. He's an ethnomusicologist. But he got a job at the English department of the University of Pittsburgh because they have one of the top children's literature and culture programs in the country. Um, and his first book... I got a
1: job because Mara <laughs> wanted to hire me. Um,
0: <laughs> I used to work at Pitt, but that is so. not why he got the job. He got the job because he was the best candidate and so exciting to have in the program. Um, his first book um, is in production now, right? Yeah, at Oxford May Uni- 1. Oh, my God! At Oxford University Press. And it's called Schooling New Media, Music, Language, and Technology in Children's Culture. And he's also working on a second book entitled tween pop. I love that title, obviously. Children's Music and the Public Sphere. So we need to ask him about Justin Bieber, Miley Cyrus, Hannah Montana, all of whom he has written articles about. Um, and also this year, to finish his tween pop book, he has an ACLS fellowship, which is a really fancy, prestigious, awesome fellowship. So they are our panelists. I'm so excited they're here. And so I think first we should just start with the basics and say, and I'll ask, what, what, is tw- what does it mean to be a tween? I'll let you go um, Where does the term come from? What does it mean?
1: Yeah, yeah. I, those are surprisingly big questions, I think. <laughs> um, but the, right. So the the simple version, the sort of everyday version, is that um, tweens are in between children and teenagers, right? And so um, uh, kids eight to twelve years old, maybe. Um, but the the problem, the reason it's not a simple question, is that. Um, is that the history of that is sort of very complex. We used to have other words like preteen or subteen. Um, so why we even, why we changed you know, the language we use. Um,
2: Micro-bopper. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Like this poster. amazing
1: poster, Esquire <laughs> magazine. Um, and. Um, and
0: that was 1968. Right. Micro bopper.
1: So, I think maybe the thing to emphasize is that tween has always been a marketing category, right? So, it's a demographic category for marketers in the consumer industries and media industries. Um, it comes from that world. Um, whereas words like preteen, maybe less so, right? Like, they also may have had sort of marketing implications. But um, tween has always been a marketing category, and the kind of 8 to 12 um, that maybe it's stabilized at never totally was fixed. And if you look at marketing literature from people who, from companies that identify as marketing to tweens, um, you can go very low and very high, right? So ranges that might bottom out at literally at preschool and end up as high as like 15 years old. Um, Or there might be sort of ranges that overlap. So five to 11 might be what one person defines as tween and another person might define 12 to 15 as tween, right? And those, don't overlap at all. So it ends up being a sort of capacious um, category, especially because of some of the way that the market, ways that the market evolved.
0: And when did the marketers start using it, though? Tween, in particular.
3: So I think that there's a um,
1: to sort of take a step
3: back. It's- this, all this has to do with sort of a larger conversation about how we define youth, yeah. and uh, you know thinking about what how do young people people of a certain age spend their time and what they have time to do outside of the things they must do, what do they choose to do, what do they have to do? So we think about distinctions between who has to work, who doesn't have to work, who has to go to school, uh, who doesn't have to go to school, um, and when is it legally mandated that people go to school and not just when in sort of our history, but where in the in the world so uh, in the United States uh, you know you you at age 11 you are supposed to be in school around the world that might be the time that you might go to work so a sort of cultural that we're part of the it's always been a certain way or hasn't been a certain way, certainly a sort of global perspective on any of this and around sort of the rights of kids to do stuff with their time, like go shopping or buy stuff, um, kind of I think needs to be framed a little bit out um, in sort of what we're looking at. And then to sort of riff off the sort of age bands, you're right, it definitely does sort of, I think, bounce off of who's talking about for what purpose to sell what. So for Nielsen ratings, it's six to 11. So when I was, you know, working at, at Disney Channel, you know, the you'd get bands for 2 to 5, 6 to 11, 2 to 11, and then older, you know, older kids too, but sort of that's what the advertising was being centered around. And so that's what you would then sort of communicate to the Nielsen marketers. So, um, we can say sort of, you know, not yet teenagers or emerging teenagers. Nowadays we have a emerging adulthood. So adolescents who aren't quite adults But we don't use that term, emerging teenager, and I don't know why exactly. It's kind of a mouthful, but we could, maybe.
0: Oh, I will take this moment to say we have a sign-in sheet over there. If you would like to be on the Com Forum mailing list, so as you go out, you can sign your um, name and your email address uh, to be on the Com Forum mailing list, so that you know about events like these uh, before they happen if you're not already on it. All right, I'm just going to keep going.
1: Um, so, can I follow yeah, up th- because yeah, I do. think the I think the the point about um, <coughs> over time and across. Uh, geography is that sort of how we think about youth and childhood changes a lot is an important one. So I, I think as a reservation when we like not every eleven year old is a tween, right? <laughs> so so tween isn't something that exists in the world that we go out and find, tween is an idea that marketers had, right? And that they started using this term in order to sort of define and categorize. Um, So even in the United States where, you know, childhood might be very different than in other other parts of the world, um, or in the contemporary United States where it might be very different than other parts of history, other times in history, um, that the idea of tween, tween is a concept and it's not a group of people, right? So it's not a sociological phenomenon, it's a sort of cultural conceptual idea um, about how people sort of might be or should be um, that really is in the minds of marketers and spreads out from there rather than being sort of in the world in actual 11 year olds that marketers are, are jumping
0: into. So let me ask then, once that happened, it became this cultural category that adults were using, that marketers were using, did did people in that category sort of grab onto it and, and have a sense like yes we are tweens like do tweens is is tweens something that tweens think of themselves as now?
3: So so I think that we have we have two things so tweens or sorry, people uh, between uh, you know sort of early adolescence um, are always trying to figure out who they are um, and are very concerned with age bracketing uh, so. And, and, but those, those definitions are very much shaped by their social context. So it might be the difference between um, being on one kind of basketball team or another kind of basketball team that you get to age into. And, and those children are the little kids and those are the older kids. Um, but if you ask them, the high schoolers, they'd all be little kids. Uh, but they're really into belo- like figuring out how they belong and who they belong to and who they belong with. And I think that those, those micro, boring interactions, you know, th- they don't have a, a market value attached to them. Um, that those in-group, out-group, uh, kids are, are themselves sort of anthropologists of sort of what, what items do they use to mark who they belong to and who they belong with, um, what do they use to purposefully exclude people and create those groups. So I think that the, um, it's much more interesting to then also think about in what ways they might adapt what is labeled as tween culture, to do that demarcation work, to do that belonging, not belonging work. Um, so it's not to say that they're like above or outside of it, but they certainly appropriate it to do that work.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I think the term itself, right, is it used by kids who might fit its criteria? Um, uh it probably never caught on the way that words like teenager caught on, right? So teenager is an invention of the kind of post war era. Um that word was was not widely used um, earlier and, and it sort of spread very quickly and people who fit the, you know, numerical category started calling themselves teenagers and now that's a sort of widespread word. Um I think tween is not that, right? Um I think tweens uh, you know, words like preteens still do circulate. Um I um and so I think some of the, one of the interesting things about this kind of experience of being kind of older than a child and younger than a teenager is that it is really ambiguous and there's, there is a lot of different language that you can use and a lot of, like one of the reasons that a word like tween can come into being is because people are trying to figure out you know what this time of life is. Parents are asking questions about it. Kids themselves are asking questions about it. Marketers are asking questions about it. Um, so some of this is throwing things against the wall and seeing what sticks, um, I think. Um, Parents might say my tween is, right, to describe their 11-year-old kid. Um, And you might find kids less, but sometimes using that word. But I'd say I think kids are more likely to use the word kid um, to describe themselves and to be very sensitive, like you say, to these micro, right? Like kids are often very clear about who's younger than them and who's older than them, sort of where they fit in a kind of age hierarchy, um, which sometimes labels like tween might be helpful for. But other times it might not,
3: mm-hmm. or they might just you know they go to the store and they see oh that's the tween clothing section right. so it's been you know clearly marketed for them so you know knowing that certain objects that they might be into are are labeled they and I think they have an awareness of the, not, not as if they're sort of unaware of it but um, self identification is sort of a different mm-hmm. different thing
0: and why did the marketers create it what's the what was in it for them.
3: I mean, I think, well, part of that is that you have, um, you have spare, uh, you have income. You have kids with spending power with parents who, um, and so we should sort of unpack this even further and to say that there is a gendered component, a class component, a racial component to um, who is desired as the market and who's constructed as the market and who gets symbolized as being, uh, you know, marketed to. So I think that um, there's been really interesting work by um, Allison Pugh, who's a, um, a sociologist, um, and Elizabeth Chin, who's done really interesting work on going to stores with kids um, who, you know lower socioeconomic backgrounds, um, kids of color, to sort of figure out when you go to a store, do you feel like uh, this stuff is for you, and how do you make meaning of that stuff? Um, and I think that the sort of exclusionary uh, uh, Kind of boundaries that are created around tween culture um, do that other work of sort of who belongs as part of a tweeted who doesn't belong in that in that category.
0: So you're saying that the category tween is is gendered and raced.
3: Well, from the get-go, actually, I think I remember I think reading that sort of the the like tween teen first emerged um, around sort of beauty tips um, that that was sort of a um, as a way of sort of you know oh for not teen you know makeup between teens sort of makeup. So that Uh, like actually having a sort of gendered component from from the get-go, and a commercial component, um, and a sort of aesthetic uh, component as well. So um, that sort of tracing through. um,
0: And generally, we have a sense, right, that when we segregate the market, that creates more and more little niches you can Mm -hmm. sell people things to. Mm -hmm. Is that kind of Mm
4: -hmm. it? Yeah.
1: So and I think so historically, in the 20th century, right, you have the emergence of like the children's consumer market. Um, <laughs> in the 20s and 30s and, and 40s, right? Where, where previously you don't you don't have that, right? You have department stores, but there isn't a separate section for children. And so you start to have like, the Daniel Cook at Rutgers wrote a book about the history of this. You start to have sections specifically for mothers and then sections which end up being sections that are sort of about young children. So you have the young children's like clothing market and toy market get consolidated and market, marketers stop, start thinking about toddlers and mothers as consumers. And then in the post-war period, you have teenagers, right, get, get consolidated and marketed to. It's interesting in that time when you're looking at youth culture developing and Elvis and the Beatles, right? If you look at the videos um, of the Beatles coming to the States, there's lots of 11-year-old girls in those videos screaming for the Beatles, right? But they're they're kind of, they're named teenagers, right? Like they're, they're so they're, um, the sort of language that exists that is, is, is teen. Um, and so, right, so you're segmenting a market, there's this kind of inexorable like uh, logic of consumer markets to kind of try and segment them. Marketers have an interest in dividing new new niches to sell to them. Um, and so it makes sense if you're targeting youth. You know, you have very young people, you have teenagers, um, and then if you want to segment that even more, you kind of divide out the space in between. And historically that starts to happen in the 80s. Um, so there is kind of a, a, a timeline here that makes sense just from a a kind of market logic, right?
0: Yeah, that does make sense. Um, so what kinds of, if you had to say what the sort of cultural stereotype of the tween is, I feel like we're moving towards defining it already, but what would you say about the sort of the cultural stereotype of who or what a tween is based on the culture that's coming out for them, mm-hmm. how they're represented in it?
3: It's funny, I think when that question, I more think about um, colors like purposely I think about, and, and that sort of gendered component of pinks, purple, sort of glitter, sparkly. Uh, sparkly. <laughs> um, uh, you know, there's always a store at the mall that like tends to be sort of labeled as the tween sort of store. Uh, I think nowadays it's Justice, is, but maybe a generation, or a little bit ago, I see some nods. Limited Two might have been the tween store. I see more nods. Um, like you knew that that was the store to get tween stuff and to see other tweens and, and sort of congregate in that sort of space or get the the catalogs or whatnot
0: and are those mostly aimed at girls those stores so yeah, yeah. So, so that's why
3: i think that sort of there is a um because because otherwise it gets framed as sort of boy culture um there, there's a sort of i think that the the tween uh niche does get very gendered your sort of perspective on, on that.
1: Component. yeah i think i i think it's a it's a uh interesting question So. Um, On the one hand, yeah, tweens are just categorically girls, right? Like the word kind of always means preteen girls and and not preteen children. Um, But it's also interesting that the word itself is about ages and not about genders, right? Um, And so there's this slippage. And when you look at what marketers are trying to do, on the one hand, it's it's clothing and makeup and, and, and music and these things that very much are targeted to girls. But there are these other moments where it seems like maybe they actually don't realize and they think they're selling to older kids. Um, But so the question of sort of who is the tween, what's the stereotype of the tween, I think malls are important, right? Um, White, suburban, middle-class girls. Um, And so there's this other logic where we have a word that means an age range, right? If it means eight to 12 or six to 11 or something, that seems, supposedly that encompasses everyone, but um, what the sort of the image of the type of person that stands in for that is a white, middle-class, suburban girl. Um, And so then, if you're not a white, middle-class, suburban girl, um, the the, um, consumer industries aren't necessarily uh, directly targeting you, and you might not fit into that as well. Um, Or you might be outside of it entirely, right? Like malls, you know, stores at malls may not be, A space where you're welcome or that's even available to you. And so, then, one interesting question is what if tweens are categorically girls with these sort of racial and class um, markers, too? Is like, what what exactly is going on with eight to 12 year old boys, right? Like, um, they, uh, in some ways, may be sort of outside of this discourse about age and consumer culture and media.
3: Yeah, although I do think it's funny. I think that there is a world that gets created sort of from the marketer advertising side in terms of what the stereotypes of, of tweens are. Mm. But just from sort of my experience in television, that doesn't necessarily look like that. That, that tween uh, sort of sitcoms and television are very remarkably culturally, racially diverse uh, in the US. Uh, so there is sort of one thing I think where advertisers um, you know, catalogs, magazines are shifting in certain ways. And I think that that's pushed, uh, especially nowadays, by young people who are online, who have sort of their own messaging about what a tween or a teen or a girl might look like. Um, and sort of a, a, a kind of a change that may be driven from sort of the mass-produced, you know, fictional content um, does kind of shift some of that, what a, at least what a tween might look like. As well,
0: can you give us some examples of like some fictional representations of tweens like on TV that were particularly important if you feel like in sort of making that happen?
3: Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think during my uh, t- time at Disney Channel, I would say that. Uh, That's so Raven. Actually, Raven Simone. I see some nods. Um, was actually a pretty. She was. I think she was the first um, African American lead uh, uh, sort of female character on the show. But she was also hugely sort of commercially successful. Kind of pulling on some of her um, past sort of notoriety from like the Cosby Cosby Show and sort of other shows. But she was also from the get-go about. Um, you know, her musical talents, her fashion talents, sort of all the other ways in which she had a sort of entrepreneurial sort of bent to the kinds of things she was interested in. And I do think at least from kind of within the network, um, sort of thinking about who could be a leading, who could be a star, who could be sort of um, the centerpiece of a franchise, because tween culture is nothing if not franchisable um, and rebootable and uh, evergreen, uh, the, the themes, the content. Um, so I think for me that that, for all the shows that now, if you go to like Disneychannel.com, you know, you'll see sort of a, a very pretty wide array of who's, a, for, you know, for now, um, um, Zendaya sort of being a lead, uh, car- lead, sort of actress and star of not just Disney, but ABC, Dancing with the Stars, like the whole sort of world of the Disney, ABC sort of franchise. So I think for me that that was a, but again, it tied to sort of like the market logic. It's not out of like, kindness or, or necessarily out of sort of inclusion, um, although that is, you know, shifting on ABC kind of as a whole, um, what shows are getting produced and greenlit there. But I think sort of the market logic behind it um, underpins it all.
1: So uh, kids media, kids TV especially, right, I think deserves a lot of credit for, um, um, Diverse casting practices going back to the 90s and, and Nickelodeon. I think there's there's no question about this, right? Right, right now, we're sort of finally starting to see primetime TV shows with um, with actors of color in lead parts, or even just in prominent parts, um, and 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 that's something that people are celebrating. Um, and it's definitely true that the Disney Channel and Nickelodeon had that 10, 20 years ago. Um, there's there's also, this 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 sort of Disney Channel casting logic is this kind of like flat multiculturalism, right? So you have um, you you your casting is kind of um, uh, nominally diverse, um, but it's also, for starters, still suburban and affluent, right? Like that's the kind of cultural center, um, and. Um, and to some extent, and not always, but to some extent, it treats ethnicity or race as kind of just this sort of flat, interchangeable thing, um, like other sort of forms of consumer taste or something, that, that it's not necessarily a... a um, um, that, that things like race and ethnicity are not um, sort of historical or kind of structural you know, class divisions, right, that, that affect the way people relate to each other, that structure people's relations to each other. They're just these sort of... Um, incidental characteristics of a character right in a school or something who might relate to, to, to each other's so it's so I, I actually am totally on board with sort of celebrating kids media kids TV especially for um, for, for doing things that primetime TV is being celebrated for 20 years later um, but there's also a sort of I think there's an interesting way that the sort of logic of multiculturalism um, kind of still, it it is is invested in a kind of uh, racial logic that ultimately, I think, is still kind of white, right? Um, It's sort of multiculturalism gets subsumed into... I think that's a complex argument, and I don't need to sort of make it right here. I have an idea, though,
0: to clarify. Dora the Explorer? I feel like this is an argument that gets made about Dora the Explorer, that, yes, it's great that there's a kid's program with Spanish and all this stuff, but where is Dora from? Like, she has no cultural specificity whatsoever. She has no traditions. She has no... Geography. She has no, there, it's a completely blank right. what her ethnicity really is. Well, it's and like on the, you do have shows
1: on the Disney Channel, and I'm blanking on the, the names, but where you do, you also, you know, if you have a, a Latino lead, they have a Latino family, and there may be, may be references to heritage and things like that, right? So it's not, it's, it's, it's not, not as perfectly. As Dora, right, it's saying. not as bad as Dora. Okay. Right, it's not as bad as Dora, absolutely.
3: Um, what do you think, Meryl? Uh, well, so I, so at Nickelodeon worked on sort of the next iteration of Dora, uh, but called Ni how? Oh, yeah. uh, so it was uh, sort of a Mandarin Chinese, uh, Chinese-focused version of not of Dora, but a lot of the same producers. And um, TV is messy to put together, yeah. and there is a lot of just just from the get-go uh, the globalization of children's uh, media um, as like a huge market. Um, you know, it's not to sort of be understated, like how much money, uh, how much of the financial models are sort of pinned on this so um, you know the sort of pan um, sort of uh, representation of being Latina for Dora is is partly sort of a uh, an adaptation of what cultures sort of make sense for the episode like what cultural components make sense for an episode and what so for for sort of advancing a singular episode or a story versus sort of the entire narrative arc and world of Dora's sort of um, identity um, but again sort of the again, where the market sort of comes up here is the show that I was on was canceled ultimately because it couldn't sell as many toys as Dora could. So uh, so there is that sort of, um, and and having sort of, we had Chinese cultural consultants, Chinese language consultants, I ran, um, uh, studies with preschoolers with kind of workshopping all the cultural content in Chinese preschools in the San Gabriel Valley so there was like a great deal of effort and and work that went into um, the specificity of the language and the act, the sort of dialect and, and all of that sort of stuff yeah. so people are I think at least on the preschool side I think trying to do something with with what they've got to work with
0: yeah that's really interesting, and somehow, and the specificity didn't sell as well as the sort of every girl-ness of Dora. Is that the idea? I,
3: I don't know the you know all the exact reasons um, yeah. in terms of population or interest, uh, uh, as you know. But I should say that then the the one of the writers from that show went on that I worked with went on to be the creator of Doc McStuffins, which is a, a preschool. I see some nods, um, <laughs> a, a preschool show on Disney that is. Uh, very important in the sense that it, uh, the lead character is a girl, um, African American girl who's a doctor. Uh, which uh, there's underrepresentation in STEM and medicine fields um, with women of color, and I think that um, there's a lot of values that if, if if that doesn't kind of come through in one show, then you know you try something else. Mm-hmm.
1: Doc McStuffin's mom is a doctor. Doc Short McStuffin's seconds. is a stuffed. A toy doctor. doctor
3: yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> There's no liability uh, there. But, but when kids, you know, when they put on, they carry the, the, the Doc McStuffin sort of bag and, you know, the coat. Um, for all intents and purposes, they're a doctor.
0: I really love this point though, that it's a complex point, right? It's because on the one hand, you guys are saying children's culture kind of led the way, and which is really striking because we often think of children's culture as retrogressive, as nostalgic, as backward looking, as lagging behind the aesthetic experimentation of adult art.
1: Which it also is interestingly, right? Like there's like if you watch shows like Hannah Montana, their format is this like golden age of TV sitcom format, right? Um, So it's more like The Honeymooners than Modern Family. Um, Which, I'm sorry, just as a sort of quick... No, yeah, that's
3: interesting. Well, I can partly explain that because the writers of kids' TV shows, the sort of running joke was you either get them sort of on their way up or on their way down. So either people who are sort of uh, cheaper to pay because they're sort of fresh out of college or they, you know, are newly employed or people who used to write for sitcoms that were canceled maybe 10 years ago and the residuals are kind of running out. So kind of on the way up or on the way down are the folks who are mostly writing children's
1: television. I think there, are, there are also <laughs> interesting aesthetic <laughs> arguments for why it happens and not just, um, I'm not sure what they are. But, um, but anyways, just as a, as a side note, it, like, some of this stuff also is a sort of archive of, like, of, sort of genres and styles. Um, yeah. But but I think I think the other the point about diversity and other things that that it also can lead the way in important
0: ways. Yeah, it's really interesting. And what about so I know a lot of people in our culture are really worried about the way kids are getting sexualized, especially girls, like younger and younger. I'm wondering how that sort of fits into these these shows and also to pop music. So Tyler, your expertise on popular music, what do you see differences in the way tweens girl stars and tween boy stars are sort of treated in that or other regards?
1: That's a lot of questions. I man. know, sorry. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I guess what I'm asking is, is how, how does pop music compare well, with so, television? Actually, to
1: go back to, maybe there's a, I think there's an interesting um, conceptual point about tweens and the idea of sexualization, and a sort of, there's a Cultural discourse about um, the sexualization of girls at a younger age right. um, so and and also thinking about why tween is a label that applies that sort of applies to girls and and, and and less to boys and I think one one way to think about this is that the idea of being between childhood and adolescence um, is a is a in our culture and in the sort of way that gender works in our culture is a problem for girls in a way that it's just not for boys, right? So transitioning from childhood, which is at least culturally constructed in terms of ideas of innocence and innocence specifically as like asexuality, right? The absence of sexuality. Um, And then there's some sort of you know, black box and you come out on the other (laughs) side as a sort of sexually mature, um, you know, sexually desiring and also sexually desirable, um, person. Um, and the, the, the issues there, right, are just so much heavier for girls, um, in part because our culture is kind of obsessed with, um, with, with, Girls' sexuality, with sort of girls as sexual objects, um, and and both with making that something that um, is a widespread kind of like desire, and also that desire turns into a discourse of kind of um, of 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 concern, right? So um, so anyway, so it's a problem for girls, and so then we get new words because we're trying to sort of like resolve a problem to some extent, and and um, and so something like tween, like naming this and trying to make sense of it, oh, you kind of are a teenager, but you still kind of are a child, right? Like, let's combine the sort of playfulness of childhood with, the, um, with some of the markers of youth culture, um, which are things like fashion and music and whatever else, right, like, um, then um, it doesn't necessarily resolve it, but at least kind of presents a package that says, like, this makes sense, it's intelligible, it's not, um, you know, it's not a contradiction anymore. Um,
0: Can I just ask you, so you said it's more of a problem for girls. How does that play out with, say, Comparing someone like, and you don't have to use these yeah. examples, but like Miley Cyrus and Justin Bieber. We had to get to them, right?
1: Well, right. But so it's. I think it's, the first point is that it's a problem that like members of the culture understand as being an issue for, for right? Like like people think about 11-year-old girls and they feel anxious, right? Like they don't know how to process it. They have this sort of like combination of, you know, this like virgin horror thing starts to apply and like w- what does it mean to um, have this person be a sexual object or maybe to be presenting themselves as sexually desiring, any number of things, right? Um, and that just, that, that doesn't apply to 11-year-old boys, right, like the kind of of cultural construct of an eleven-year-old boy. The image we have of an eleven-year-old boy um, is is very different. Um, what, like Tom
0: Sawyer or something?
1: Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, any number of things. Okay. Um, it's um, so. So I think for it's less the celebrities, right, than the sort of the word itself and the and and the way we think about maturation. Um, I, there's a whole kind of argument about what does happen for boys. But I, I mean, just the sort of simple point is that I think we can see that the people are concerned about that for girls. Um, and so then you do get weird things, right? Like the Jonas Brothers had this thing where they'd wear promise rings. Um, and so they were sort of like saying, yes, we're virgins. We're going to stay virgins. Um, but like, men don't have that virgin whore thing applied to them. So you don't have male celebrities who might be objects of like their fans' sexual desire um, have to say, oh no, 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 I'm still a virgin, right? You don't have that. But then in this weird like tween media environment, you have the boys like really going out of their way and kind of voluntarily taking that on, um, which I don't know if which is I think an interesting problem, right? So it's so it's not performing traditional sort of masculine celebrity, right? Which might be more kind of ag- aggressively, you know, um, desiring and other things, um, and instead, um, kind of kind of putting themselves in in a position that in the past would have been reserved for for girls, um, whereas the the kind of the forms of femininity that someone like Taylor Swift or, or Hannah Montana are performing are much more conventional and traditional, right? I think you can see them as being um, pretty conventionally sort of like modest, but still, but still sexualized, right? Kind of um, mm-hmm. um, proper femininity.
0: Yeah, I was sense. thinking when you guys were talking about consumption, I was remembering when my son one time wanted to watch the Miley Cyrus show. What was is that's the Hannah Montana yeah. show? Yeah. And um, we turned it on and she and another girl were having a huge fight at the mall over a pair of shoes. Who was going to get to buy the pair of shoes? And I was just like, oh my god, I don't want to watch this. I don't want my kid to watch it. Because it was so about consumption and, and fashion and superficial stuff. I don't know. What's your take on yeah. this? Yeah. So I guess from the inside, yeah.
3: uh, we're sort of this experience. So I will say, so one thing about uh, a sort of off the record uh, development executive said to me in trying to sort of create more progressive shows, a sense of frustration of like, I don't know why I like spent all of this time going through being a development you know a, a assistant at an agency to then like a development assistant to like working my way up to like the development chain, which is kind of how it tends to work in Hollywood, just so consumer products could tell me what to green light. Uh, the real sort of dictation of if it doesn't get pitched in the room with a whole suite of materials, then it's likely not going to get sort of greenlit. So uh, of course that ends up, but of course at the same time that you still have, you know, rules, how kind of up to date they are from the FCC about the kinds of marketing that can be done on television and can't be done in, in what sort of order and you, know, you can't um, technically have, um, although Hannah Montana I don't think is on the air anymore on Disney mm-hmm. Channel, they've moved on to some other uh-huh. other shows, yeah. but you, know, you couldn't have a Hannah Montana, a spot for a Hannah Montana, um, like CD within right. the Hannah Montana episode, because that would become a program-length commercial. <laughs> uh, of course, like you could say, sort of the whole channel is sort of a 24-hour commercial. So, um, sort of whether or not it's sort of Hannah Montana in the episode, but there are people who like who it's their job to like painstakingly because there's huge fees um, uh, attached to that if that ends up happening. So, people whose jobs it really is to like sort of check every little element that goes. Uh, my, my job, my specific job when I was at Disney Channel, was uh, program scheduling coordinator, which meant that I managed the grid of every single thing at every single time that was on Disney Channel, and like in a database would like program and plug in episodes. Like the programming sort of executives would decide, like this is when High School Musical Two is going to premiere, and these are all the episodes that are kind of going to go around it. But uh, the rest of the time, you put on what you what You're going to put on uh, So sort of managing like which of those episodes would come in, but this ties us back to sort of the sexualization discussion because uh, you know very you know the Disney Channel stars then leave the nest at a certain point and go on to more teen or adult careers, uh, and if I you know, I think you had mentioned something earlier about sort of there were like moments where we're like oh something happened and that's you know there's sort of like a breakage. So it was pre Miley, uh, uh, it was Lindsay Lohan. That sort of was the sort of tipping point of um, what who represents sort of the brand who has sort of gone too far in terms of no longer being representative of what the the Disney sort of brand represents um, in terms of um, not just sexuality but then also um, sort of drugs and alcohol and sort of other um, other behaviors too. But I have a vivid memory of having to scrub. Um, having to pull the Parent Trap from having aired like one night because like something had come out in the news and everybody at sort of Disney Channel was sort of a flurry that we had to put some other movie on that night because it would look really bad to have the Parent Trap, uh, the Lindsay Lohan version, not the like um, Haley Mills version, uh, for people in the room who know what that that <laughs> is uh, on on the television that night because um, it would it would be a um, not a good thing.
0: Wow. That's really interesting.
1: And, and not just after they leave, right? right. So like Miley Cyrus um, d- uh, had the Vanity Fair shoot and the mm-hmm. sort of pole dancing thing, right. um, all of which were sort of overblown, right? We live in a culture that's like looking for ways to freak out about um, about girls, um, images of girls. Um, and um, and the um, Vanessa Hudgens had mm-hmm. these photos like while she was still affiliated with Disney. Yeah. Um, but going back even further in the 90s when you had the, um, the sort of boy band and teen pop explosion in the late 90s, um, which was not coming from the Disney Channel and Nickelodeon, um, but was definitely very interested in young audiences. Um, you had Britney Spears and NSYNC and these other, they would be on, on the Disney Channel all the time.
3: Although right,
1: they did on start on Mickey Mouse Club. They did start at Mickey Mouse Club, right. And then <laughs> right, they, they, they went away for a while. But they also, they also they didn't play at, they, they aired on Radio Disney, but they also aired on Top 40 Radio, right, right. which was not true for, for Hannah Montana or High School Musical. Um, but so but you had the nickelodeon and the disney channel like Really wanting to um, have these acts on because they attracted their core audience, right? So if you could have a Britney concert on the Disney Channel, um, that was perfect for Disney. And there was, but that was a real sort of contradiction, right? On the one hand, you really want it; on the it's sort of exactly what your audience is looking for. Um, but after a year or so, um, Fox Kids and Nickelodeon and Disney Channel all sort of started um, backing off away from Britney, who well before 2006, 2007, she started having her kind of Lindsay Lohan style public drama um, was seen as kind of too provocative um, for the kid audience. So there's this real kind of tension where it's precisely that like teen youth culture, like kind of provocative, um, eventually highly sexualized imagery that kind of that, that, that is what Cells, right, and and is what you sort of want to put on screen, which is why you have these stars like Vanessa Hudgens or or Miley Cyrus, who can sort of be getting into trouble at the moment that they're still kind of kids kids stars, is because you're always straddling that line. and and they sort of just constantly are going back and forth, right? Be kind kind of pushing up against the line and then backing yeah. off against. The front. Yeah.
3: Although I think it is really important if we're you know talking about not just tween culture from sort of ten years ago, but tween culture sort of at the moment and the ways in which, you know, young uh, you know women who are stars of sort of Disney Channel shows are um, themselves on social media are you know are you know uh, Rowan Blanchard who stars in uh, the show Girl Meets World. There was just a, a New York Times article on like. Her definition of feminism and like how she, I think, identifies as, um, you know, not necessarily heterosexual, not necessarily sort of conforming to sort of gender binaries, um, that she, um, you know, has sort of made sort of certain political statements. I think we're in a, a sort of different space in which that is not, I don't think, kind of controlled in the same way that the Disney machine. Had been operating, uh, and that that sort of relationship between, um, and and you have sort of also celebrities now um, like Amanda Stenberg and Willow Smith who maybe came, became famous um, as um, as sort of tweens through like uh, Willow Smith is her parents are uh, Will Smith and Jada Pinkett Smith, um, but you have then also Amanda Stenberg who was uh, Rue. In, in uh, d- uh, the, the Hunger, Hunger Games. Games sort of series, um, as they sort of you know enter a little bit older, becoming engaged in Black Lives Matter, engaged in sort of black girl magic um, sort of themes and creation of material online. Um, so using some of that, that tween notoriety to, re- to redefine what it is to be sexual, what it is to be uh, to identify as a girl or not identify as a girl or not identify as any particular gender either, um, that, that there's this dialogue, I think, that, that today's you know, teen, you know, teenage stars of tween sort of media um, are, are sort of bringing and, and, and pushing some you know, larger cultural conversations, not just in sort of the youth space, but sort of the larger cultural space overall.
0: Really cool. That kind of anticipates my next question, which was going to be, you both work on technology. um, And and I was thinking that technology is one way that kids have a way to communicate with each other and make connections and engage in activism that maybe wasn't so easy in the past, potentially. I don't know. So I'm interested to know what you guys think in terms of how technology fits in, what role it plays in sort of the category tween.
3: so the number one technology that I think has been on my mind for the past uh, few weeks is Musically. Do people know that app? Uh, people sort of nods. Um, maybe you sort of know about it because it's sort of a musical. Okay, so it's uh, it is where if you know an eight-year-old, uh, they might be on it. Uh, it is, of course, social media when it comes to uh, being thirteen, age thirteen and up. Um, that's what sort of one is supposed to be that age, but there's Five, six, seven, eight, you know, nine, ten year olds, that sort of band on a Musically. It's an app uh, for lip syncing, but it is a lot like Snapchat. Uh, and it does not ask you what age you are when you sort of create a profile. Um, uh, There's celebrities who have their own kind of um, uh, sort of uh, profiles on it, but also just sort of people who are, uh, instead of YouTubers, they're musers. And so they have their own followings, people who are primarily musically like on the app famous, who then become one of the users just got signed by CIA, and I think she's like 13 or 14 or something. Um, uh, so there are these spaces that were not um, considered to be sort of social networking uh, spaces, but because there's certain gray areas in terms of having to be you know regulated by um, by the FCC by you know. By sort of those those regulatory bodies, um, that that sort of tweens are finding spaces to connect with one another um, and to you know express who they are, express um, their their identities, um, to collect. I think this is also like an important identity development, and um, that is certainly a sort of a teenage. uh, something that happens in sort of those years, but there's also the sense in sort of the the sort of age band, the eight to eleven, of like collecting and sorting and sort of amassing, and using that sort of as you go along to figure out what you are. But sort of, you know, that's why like baseball card collections or whatever sort of collection, Pokemon, Pokemon whatever it sort of is, the sort of. Amassing and then kind of as you move through, like sorting and getting and rid. And so you can like follow a lot of people and then unfollow them if you want. But that's sort of part of the new collection is like following a lot of people and like having them on your feed. And that is now because so many young people have, um, so more teens have phones, but more tweens have tablets. In terms of like what are some of these distinctions between teens and and tweens, but. like the 8 to 11 band, I think it's spend about six hours a day with media. Um, but teens, uh, uh, it's closer to nine. So you do have sort of some, some gaps oh. here. But TV is the number one technology still among, that, that, um, that tweens are, eight to 11-year-olds are engaging with.
0: And do you... So not
3: to overplay sort of the high-tech social media stuff, stuff, that TV and music are still number one.
0: Mm-hmm. And do you think that this is, I think it's so striking. So we've been talking about tween culture now for 45 minutes. <laughs> Books have not come up, <laughs> says the literary critic, um, which is partly a feature of what you guys are interested in. Oh, well, no, we in, talked about Hunger
3: Games. That's true.
0: Brief passing. <laughs> um, but it does seem to me interesting that a lot of the action, I feel like, seems to be happening more in these other, other fields of cultural production. Is that fair or right, do you think?
3: Well, I mean, I do think, I mean, book series like Hunger Games, like (coughs) Divergent, um, that those are, I mean, they're transmedia franchises.
0: Right, but they're not tween. I think of them as teen, and because, it's not that tweens don't Mm -hmm. read them, but I don't think they're culturally marked as tween phenomena. I think they're Also, the publishing industry doesn't use but right. the publishing
1: industry doesn't use the term tween, it uses YA, well, right? Well, that's um, right,
0: yeah. And, and, and yeah. that's yeah. its
1: own interesting question. Or middle grades, which is, ai mean, mean—is what's the relationship between those? Um, yeah, that's and, right. And like tween, As an industry, um,
0: it's not invested in tween. But, yeah. but I
1: think there's also, like, genres and mediums are not um, equally distributed, right? So, um, so, Music popular music especially um, has very strong associations to youth culture in particular right um, and so it's it's Reasonable to expect and it, it in fact, I think is the case that um, That kids would be invested in certain types of media and not other types of media right mm-hmm. um, and these things can be um, uh, Divided by gender by but um so in the 80s when you had um, the the sort of half-hour program-length commercials, the the He-Man and and um, and Smurfs and um, these other shows that were um, kind of developing a kind of um, new new form of, of kids TV um, when the um, developers of, of these TV programs were looking to target somewhat older kids, than the young kids who would watch He-Man, um, the shows that they produced were Jim and the Holograms and um, Barbie and the Rockers, right? Like these music-focused shows, whereas like the Smurfs or uh, Rainbow Bright, these aren't, aren't music-focused shows. So you're trying to target older kids, um, which means tweens, right? Um, and you bring in music. In the 90s, Nickelodeon and the Disney Channel and Fox News were all in this competition to get older kids um, Fox and- Kids, you mean? What did I say? Fox News. Oh, awesome, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. well,
3: like, that's-
1: <laughs> six and <laughs> <a> one. Um, <laughs> Um, and, and what did they do? They went after the tween pop stuff, right? And they yeah. started putting in, saying, "Can the Backstreet Boys?" And so, there, so, music as being as this as having strong associations with youth culture, with teenage culture, and the logic of tween is trying to somehow integrate youth culture with childhood um, and sort of mix and match them and make them make sense. Um, it makes sense that music, especially, would be um, one of the most visible mm-hmm. and prominent. But also no, it seems
0: like historically the rise of tween as a category is coinciding with the rise of new media, right? I mean that 1968 Microboppers article mm-hmm. is all about Marshall McLuhan and the rise of television and like new kinds of technology. So I feel like they're they're aren't they developing
3: kind of at the same time? There's so lots of lots of things that are developing. You Not know, to make like kind of spurious correlations between sort of one or the other. I mean, you also have things like um, you know family, you know, uh, you know divorce rates. Yeah. Um, you know, what does a family look like? What what does the home life look like? Um, you know, you have sort of uh, sort of spike sort of in the '80s, but now we're at a point where like divorce rates are about the same as sort of around World War II sort of era. So you have sort of shifts in just what family is. Um, uh, economic stability or instability. Um, uh, families nowadays that um, uh, are are increasingly, because um, globally diasporic families, so young people that are trying to connect with loved ones who don't don't live not just in like the same town, but the same country. Um, and so, what those tools are for connecting. So some of these like broader. You know, kind of sociological frames around like what does it mean to grow up within a certain time period, mm-hmm. and there are certain tools available for other kinds of connection mm-hmm. um, and your you know your phone can include you know Skype or whatever it is to connect with somebody else, and it has all this other stuff too um, uh, so all of those things are our our technologies do so much, but always in relation to some of these broader themes that aren't just about impacting tweens but impacting. The sort of social spheres in which they live.
1: And also, but and also, like, there's a whole long list, right? Like the sorts of places where people live, changing neighborhoods, policies where we've actually like criminalized in a lot of cases, kids playing by themselves on streets, um, the decline of things like malls, right? Which sort of replaced neighborhoods for a while as a kind of semi-public space where kids could congregate independently. Um, and so to some extent, media is just a kind of like small replacement for you know the public spaces that have all been taken away the decline of neighborhood schools all sorts of things I think it's
0: really comforting to think about the ways in which media can link people together and maybe give teens and tweens who are marginalized a way to find people That they couldn't necessarily find. Could you speak to that?
3: Well, and at the same time, though, the so just talking about musically, like yes, we can sort of say that there's like new connections, new communities. But then thinking about the biases that are built into into any of these systems. So I was just going through musically with my students in my mobile communication class, and there was like a hash. There's a hashtag for like face filters where you could, you know, just like just like Snapchat, where you could. Um, You know, change your face like a little little look while you're using the front facing camera to kind of go into the phone. Um, So again, this is an app that is largely being driven by sort of this like 5 to 11 sort of age range, younger than we might think of as social media. And I pull it up and one of the face filters is like a kabuki sort of like mask with like a fan. So we have sort of yellow face going on in this setting where mostly unsupervised 5 to 11 year olds are hanging out. Um, So awesome friend making, not so great cultural stereotypes, cultural appropriation, um, and, a, and a definite sort of um, outlook that, that might not be a thing that you know, kids a little bit older or you know, even the kids themselves might choose to encounter, but it's built, it's in the, in the neighborhood that they're hanging out in. Mm-hmm. So I think that the sort of you know, belonging, not belonging, there's ways that these technologies create um, that code um, that into their very being and so the, um, the sort of it's awesome, it's terrible, all at the same time is mm-hmm. important to, to yeah, hold on I, to.
0: I was thinking about like it's something like it gets better, right? The phenomenon where you can, it, maybe there's no one in your town who is supportive of you as a queer kid growing up, but you through the internet have access to these messages or. And the something. flip side
1: of that is the sort of, is you, you bring the bullying home, right? Um, yeah. Because, I mean, one of the kind of consistent findings over the last 10 years of, or more of research about new media and kids is that, or social media and kids, is that, the, that most of the people that you're linked to on social media are people that you know face to face, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so there may be opportunities, um, and, and probably more for somewhat older kids, right, mm-hmm. to, to, to make connections. Um, or to be members of affinity groups, right? Like right. if you really like fantasy novels or something, you can find a space for yourself. I'm so glad you um, mentioned that
0: because I was thinking. Yeah, creative opportunities like writing fan fiction and finding a community and a creative outlet. Both. Right.
1: Um, I'm, I don't think we're at the point yet where kids really are like developing lots of social relationships that are purely that are just online social relationships, right? I still um, think it's it's the vast majority of the kind of links, the social links that you have on social media are people that you have some connection to face to face. People you already uh, know. Yeah. Uh,
0: very interesting.
1: Can I make so I, I the right technology. Um, uh, I think an interesting and kind of another kind of funny and problematic example, Kids Bop is the biggest, one of, one of the um, biggest music brands, period, um, but, um, but definitely the biggest music brand going with kids' music. Um, so Kids Bop takes um, uh, top 40 pop music and like, re records it. Um, with um, choruses of kids kind of singing along to the hooks um, and, and packages it in CDs, in compilations, and sells it to kids. Um, and they usually edit a little bit of the language. Um, and so, uh, so it's basically very timely pop music that parents might not want their kids to be listening to, um, edit it a little bit, the vo- add some kids' voices, and now it's okay to, to sell to kids, right? And so, you know, four to 11-year-old kids. Um, so uh so Kids Bop, their albums are always in the top 10. Anyways, the, the point is not Kidsbop, Bop, but kidsbop.com in 2006, 2007 through I think starting as early as 2006, but maybe 2008 to 2010 or 2011, kidsbop.com was set up as a video sharing site for kids. So um, YouTube also would be a space that was there was um, growing at the time, um, but being on YouTube, if you're an eight-year-old kid, might be sort of a question, might be problematic. Um, And also sites like YouTube ask for information, uh, personally identifiable information that they're not allowed to ask for of young kids. So kidsbop.com was setting itself up as, as, um, as sort of fitting within the regulations, not asking kids for their personally identifiable information and then also kind of being this safe neighborhood space. And they were encouraging kids in particular to record themselves Performing right sort of like musically and to post these videos and share and they'd have contests and all these other different things Um, and Kidsbop.com, that version of kidsbop.com, abruptly disappeared in, like, it's hard to date, but in, like, 2011, I sort of looked away for a minute, and all of a sudden, it wasn't there. Um, And Kidsbop retooled itself as a celebrity-driven brand where now they have, they cast kid performers, whereas previously, they always just hired studio singers um, to re-record the songs, just sort of anonymous adult voices singing the leads. Now they have, you know, consistent named celebrity kids, like on the Disney Channel or something, right? Sort of who who are celebrities that they're trying to promote as celebrities. They have these kids go on tours. So they're trying to sell concert tickets and they no longer have the idea of like, kids sharing their performances with other kids and having a community of performance. Um, And that didn't work, right? Like, kidsbot.com has always been successful, but it's much more successful with this kind of old media, celebrity-focused, you know, uh, album sales model than it was with a kind of new media, YouTube-style, peer-to-peer, sharing-based based model. Yeah. And I think we can learn lessons from stuff like that, right? Like that that um, there's not always a perfect alignment between kind of kids and whatever the next technology is. Mm-hmm. Kids thought maybe YouTube and kids would be perfect. And if they invested in it, somehow it would turn into the thing that would okay. um, solve the problem.
0: Well, and also that. The sort of the, the idyllic notion that I was sort of floating for you guys uh, what, that kids are using these to communicate with kids and express themselves creatively tends to often get shut down or managed or controlled sure. or appropriated by adults.
3: Well, no, and especially in sort of school settings, you know, Mm that sort of what what are the computers here for, what are, you know, what's the goal here, Um, with the knowledge, of course, that there's plenty of young people for whom the Internet is only something that they're able to reliably access, maybe at a school or at a library and not at home. Mm -hmm. Um, And so those same sort of pathways to all the skills that we know, not just technological skills, but social skills, cultural skills. Skills like critical, you know, thinking about you know sources of information you come across, um, the ways in which any of those spaces are not um, equally sort of aligned. But um, to go back to something something that I realized I hadn't really brought up before, but even just sort of talking about tastes between a certain age band, um, that in my work I've been really interested in what ways sort of the notion of age-appropriate media. Um, can be complicated by issues around, you know, things like disability and and cognitive development, different domains of development of young people who don't um, necessarily fit the sort of ages and stages model that marketing is meant to um, to sort of be geared towards. So um, I've been studying um, kids on the autism spectrum and, you know, different interests or engagements um, that they might have. And you can have both a three and a 13 year old who love Elmo or who love cars? Um, but as you age older, you're not going to necessarily find the Elmo sneakers that fit. Um, you're not going to find the materials that um, are intended for sort of an audience. But those are that that's still sort of within that biological age range, something that somebody loves and somebody's, that somebody's, somebody's into and that somebody's um, identity is sort of in relation to. So there is these you know, self-organizing you know, groups or spaces where young people can feel like they belong. So um, there's a, a, a group of uh, young people who um, are on the game Minecraft, which is a very, we can't, we can't talk about tweens and sort of you know, culture without talking about Minecraft, I don't think. Um, but there's like a server. On the sort of Minecraft being this online, um, sort of networked, blocky sort of game where it's like Legos, but plus like uh, Second Life, I guess, if we're gonna like throw, if Second Life rings a bell to people. But you know, a virtual sort of space of building and creativity. Um, and you can play it where you're sort of in like a game mode or kind of a creative mode where there's like monsters and attacking or just sort of cohabitation. And there's a, and you can have a standalone server, uh, a space where you don't have to worry about other people kind of messing up your game or you can kind of block it off. And so there's a server uh, called Autcraft that is around sort of kids on the spectrum, socializing in ways that are most comfortable for them, sharing interests in ways that might be most comfortable, um, not being bullied by others online, because online bullying with, among young people with disabilities is higher than for kids without disabilities. Um, that's across various kinds of disabilities as well. So in what way the internet is a safe or comfortable or welcoming space for various kinds of difference. Um, and there's certainly adults who have come to organize around those spaces, but um, it can take a lot of in-person support to um, and conversations. And, and but those kinds of materials are sort of homespun right now. That they're not um, they're not really integrated into larger conversations about like child safety or about privacy or about um, how to engage on the internet and how to benefit from it. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have, I mean, in the U.S., 13%. Of students, um, re- 3 to 22, receive some kind of special education services. That's not an insignificant percentage of young people we can say are individuals you know, that identify as having a disability of some kind. So, um, so my interest has been in this the whole sort of space in which understanding, because there's been so much focus on sort of a medical view of focusing on sort of these kids as being sort of in special education classrooms or in therapy settings, but not um, this. Yeah, Mimi Ito and other researchers, um, the sort of hanging out, messing around, geeking out stuff, um, sort of mundane, ordinary things. Mm-hmm. And so I've been really interested in, well, what does that mundane, ordinary life look like for them, too? Because that's happening as well. Um, and there's a market if you did kind of dig a little deeper.
0: Thank you so much. Well, I have to pause and say, if anyone needs to run, now is a good time to make a, an, a non-conspicuous <laughs> exit. But for the rest of you, it is time for your questions. So please line, go ahead and line up at microphones. Um, while people are filing out, you can come to a microphone and ask a question.
5: I'll be brave. Yes. Yay! Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> um, so lately, I've like noticed like there's like a big rise in older, not kids, but like teenagers and young adults who um, get really invested in like tween-based shows, like something like Steven Universe or Gravity Falls or Adventure Time, stuff like that, and it always makes me feel a little bit weird, Um, and they seem to like kind of cater to them now too, and I was just kind of wondering like what your thoughts on that were, and
3: yeah. So it does have a, so there is a larger history of, um, uh, the, the lines between adult culture and children's culture being kind of messy. Uh, Pee-wee Herman, sort of Pee-wee's Playhouse, I think, is one sort of key uh, factor where uh, there was a sh- you know a show, a sort of camp um, aesthetic around, um, and even sort of earlier, I'm forgetting the exact name of the show, but um, adults who would kind of be you know, the performers, the lead characters in sort of these variety shows, and there always being sort of a line there between who is this. Who is this for? Um, who belongs as part of the viewing audience? And people, you know, other kind of identities taking a hold of children's kind of culture for whatever purpose that might be, um, for some kind of, um, you know, defining what what a group might be belonging to. Um, so, do, so, sort of short answer is sort of it's it's not new, but the internet makes things more visible and makes it kind of spread faster and easier to find other people who might kind of share some of that stuff. But the the um, our comfort around sort of where those those boundaries are um, have existed for a while.
1: And you're right, shows like SpongeBob and Ren and Stimpy and Nickelodeon in the 90s were pretty consciously um, were Sarah Bene Weiser from USC makes this argument, but were, we're consciously trying to sort of use adult cool, right? Kind of countercultural, and specifically in the 90s, a kind of like like campy gay cool. Um, uh, precisely to make their kids' media a little bit more edgy, um, and also to, to alienate true adults, right? Um, so um, so what, you, what you don't want as your audience is actual middle-aged moms and dads, right? Like the moms and dads of, in, in this particular model. Um, and so if you can get some kind of countercultural group of, of young people um, to buy into it, um, Right then, that kind of that makes it a little edgy and makes it exciting for young kids um, who also can get the jokes and stuff. And also, it's, it marks it as not being culture for um, uh, you know, middle-aged parents. Being a middle-aged parent has changed a lot in the last generation, <laughs> also. But um, but right, that sort of logic of, of um, uh, kind of excluding the the least cool you know
0: but is that really right because i would think like from the production standpoint i would think you would want the widest possible like you'd want to appeal to every single person that you possibly could
3: i mean and yes and no i think that there's um i mean there's people who who work for all these companies are themselves you know fans they're adults who who geek out who fan out who want to you know play a role and play a part but um, that's not part of the brand identity. And so you have to up like, the brand identity above all. Gotcha. Um, so there's, there's, you know, you, the money source is nothing if not for that. So it, it's a sort of tension there.
1: Okay. Right. If you're a network like Nickelodeon, your whole reason for existence is targeting kids, right? So right. You, you don't actually necessarily want to expand out. And be, um, in, but also there are, the flip side of this, right, like sort of uncool grown-ups liking kids' media is another version. In the 60s, um, Lynn, Lynn Spiegel in her book um, Make Room for TV uh, uh, points this out. In the 60s, um, there was a real effort to... Um, Make TV that was like specifically appropriate for kids because there was fewer broadcast channels and mo- everything was kind of for everyone, right? And that was the idea. Um, so you had um, local networks. Um, one show it, on NBC in the New York area was called Kukla, Fran, and Ollie, and was this like puppet show, and was really just sort of insipid and saccharine, and and and, and it was a good show, whatever. But um, but it was this puppet <laughs> show. So. Um, <laughs> but the point, the like reason that the show exists is that adults are concerned that kids are being exposed to the wrong things, right? Like, the kids love The Lone Ranger. They're happy with the sort of cop and action shows and whatever else. But adults are concerned, and so adults have this idea about what kids should watch. And so then you make a show for kids, and then the... Um, uh, NBC was gonna turn Kukla, Fran, and Ollie from a half-hour show into two 15-minute episodes, which is more on the model of of, of kids' TV, and they got all these letters from adults who were like, I watch the show, it's not a kids' show, why are you trying to turn this into a kids' show? kind of precisely because the logic of the show is like is adult values about what's appropriate, you know, what's appropriate and then adults end up watching it and then adults end up claiming it as their own end mm-hmm. object. So that's sort of the the weird flip side, right, of of this logic of of grown-ups watching cartoons. Um, I wasn't is
6: this- i don't know maybe we're not worried. whatever we're i don't sound think we're anymore. actually okay uh i wasn't actually going to talk about kuka fran and ollie but i'll just add that i don't think anyone working on that show conceived of it as being for children in any way so okay. the network had this fantasy great but you know just the kind of dialogue was so adult oriented and uh, bert i can't remember his last name but the puppeteer was always drunk uh and just you know kind of improvising and you know there's just a lot of ridiculously adult banter, not super sexualized or violent or anything like that, but you know, it's it's obviously just the level of discourse was on an adult level, and uh, pretty sophisticated. Um, but what I wanted to ask about was uh, if you could just follow up a little bit on Pee Wee Herman, because um, I, I was really glad that that came up, and you know, the original HBO special was so patently dirty and for adults, um, and you know, it was just a show I think he did out in LA, and they happened to put it on HBO. This was back before The Sopranos, before HBO sort of became its mm-hmm. new version of what HBO mm-hmm. was. Mm-hmm. Um, and then The Kid Show was uh, working very hard to appeal to children and adults, obviously. Mm-hmm. And I think the movies as well. But the newest Netflix, uh, Pee Wee Herman, uh, is somewhere between the HBO special and the TV series, I guess. and. I don't even—I don't even know if that's accurate. I'd like to hear your thoughts on it, but it just seemed really, really not for kids. And kind of everything that was submerged and sort of winky uh, in the TV series is much more out there, and it's like much more aggressively queer than the original was in certain ways, or less queerness is less sort of allegorized and kind of submerged and closer to the surface. So I just wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah,
3: I think if anything, it's more sort of that—that—that that, that those sort of specials are maybe geared towards. Yeah maybe young people who were fans of the show who are now older and so their sort of taste might be kind of between that original series and the kids series. So I think it's sort of p- part of this in general sort of nostalgia repackaging of you know whether it was the, the sort of full house you know Netflix like Netflix is you know sort of invested in like the Fuller house you know sort of remake as well um, and we can say whether that, Is or is not sort of, you know, nobody, I don't think anybody has enjoyed that show as much as like people enjoyed Full House, although like that's a show that still airs sort of all the time. So the fact that Pee Wee hasn't sort of been sort of airing continuously to sort of maintain that audience of non original viewers, whereas something like Full House, another sort of Netflix show, Nick at Night, has been sort of churning that. Out. I was at dinner the other night, um, and a parent. There was a kid who was like at dinner with like you know two adults who were sort of sitting there, and the girl had like headphones and an iPad. And I was like, oh, oh, well, it's maybe not like the best setting for that to happen. But then I like took a sneak and I realized that like this like nine year old was watching Full House on her iPad, which like I was like, oh right, because that's a current show to her or something. So I think that the um, that Peewee, you know, when we talk about sort of these, who is the market, who is it for? Um, has not been able, and and whatever like licensing, like whether that because a lot of times whether a show has been sort of repurposed or still reairs is so much, so much about the music licensing, whether people could get permission or not, um, and how expensive that could be is like. A significant reason why shows kind of come out or on DVD or don't come out on DVD or do or don't on Netflix. So um, that doesn't really sort of answer it, but I think the sort of, especially in the Netflix era, you know, we haven't, we haven't really talked about sort of streaming versus non-streaming, um, you know, uh, television content, but um, how young people can access some of that archival material. And so maybe now whatever sort of spaces there are, but then again, it's like, is, is sort of what was Pee-wee sort of then now sort of certain YouTube is Tyler, um, I'm forgetting his last name, but like are there sort of campy, you know, transgressive sort of YouTube stars who are mm. that sort of fill a Pee-wee-like space for some young people? Um, and, and maybe it's sort of, you know, should, should Pee-wee be, have, be sort of collaborating with those folks? Like should that, you know, is that or does it become increasingly more sort of a, a separate category that isn't tapped into how young people identify or, um, want to have you know conversations with those people um, at this point, or expect to at least.
1: And and just I mean the small point that like what what is for kids is usually more about adults than about kids, right? Sort of like edgy, aggressive, or campy, or any sort of um, um, humor often is sort of right in the wheelhouse of kids. Um, you know, or think about like Bugs Bunny or something, which might have a very similar logic as, as Pee Wee Herman, right, um, and stuff that we see now, you know, early Looney Tunes that now seems like very inappropriate for kids, right, but actually was, was um, um, uh, targeted to and successful with, and also for, for a wider audience. Um, so that, like that, I think that's an important question too, right? It's, it's, I think, to some extent, more about uh, the wider adult kind of um, expectations about what is for kids, right? What's appropriate for kids change, um, and then sometimes we look back and see things as being either, as, as, as being surprisingly, you know, um, inappropriate, right? Yeah. When at the time they weren't seen that way.
0: It's interesting, too, to think about, like I was thinking about a grad student I had at Pitt who was working on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, and she went to the Mr. Rogers archive and discovered all these fan letters from adult women who were so moved by the message, I love you just the way you are, and would write to Mr. Rogers. And here was this whole audience that we had not noticed. That's not really an answer to your question, but I just thought it was so amazing. I guess it's answering the question about like, Reception—how important it is mm-hmm. to actually study the reception and who's responding, because yeah. it's not always yeah. who you think is. Well, responding.
3: If we to, I mean, that's like so people—scholars of soap operas were sort of the original sort of innovators around sort of what it—you know—when you have a show that's on all the time and these relationships and, and storylines that don't appear, you know, on sort of broadcast television and, and sort of people's identities with that stuff. I think you know we looked like soap opera studies as sort of part of that.
7: Yeah. But, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, um, I wanted to actually pull away a little bit from popular culture and go back to the definition. Um, because I think there's also, although you did say it wasn't a sociological category, I think the word, let's say, teen, for instance, you know, when, it's, when it comes into other cultures, um, takes on a certain aspirational quality. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in India, if a, if a parent says, I have a teenager, you know that that parent thinks of the teenager like an American teenager. Mm-hmm. Because most other parents would say, oh, I have a 14-year-old or a 16-year-old. They would not describe uh, the child in those terms. So, so I'm wondering what happens to the word tween if it crosses those sorts of boundaries. I mean, in a way, it is becoming a, sort of a sociological category, or maybe a political one, maybe a cultural one. I don't know, but it is not just a marketing, it's not
1: just a marketing um, unit. Well, doesn't your example sort of prove the point, right? So it's not like a demographic category, like kids of a certain chronological age with a certain you know, economic status and, and racial status. It, it, it is more this set of kind of cultural marketers and, and cultural norms, right? Um, and so, And and, um, so, I mean, that's certainly sociological, right, in in, in important ways. Um, But I think that's the stuff that words like, teenager also, I think, really leads with, and tween leads with. Whereas words like preteen might, at least the way they're used, might be sort of, uh, have less of the cultural baggage, even though they certainly have cultural baggage, and more like the way that adolescent has all of this baggage around like, medicalization and bodies and development, that's that, but that has different cultural baggage than teenager does, right? Um,
7: yeah, but I'm I'm just wondering, you know, I mean, as a researcher or somebody who's looking at this um, and trying to see, you know, what sort of terms might universally apply um, or have some sort of correspondence across cultures, um, then then you realize that there is no correspondence or very little correspondence. There may be overlap, but really not uh, correspondence. So. So when a term like tween, let's say, travels across these boundaries, what happens to it? What's what's the aspirational quality that's attached to it? Well,
3: um, well you, I mean, I wonder if that also is sort of, you know, that Ameri- that U.S. ness, if mm-hmm. if that's part of sort of the buying into part of that culture, and if that is. Part of like the sort of aspirational, you know, sense. I also think when you say somebody saying, "I have a teenager versus a fourteen-year-old," that m- maybe there's one of those distinctions would sort of elicit, a, "I'm so sorry. Like, how are you doing? Like, you know, <laughs> is your life sort yeah. of being kind yeah. of turned upside down?" Yeah. Um, and that, and but that partly being a reflection of uh, a certain characterization of sort of teenage mm. culture as maybe sort of antithetical to community or family values or sort of. Um, respect for elders that might be sort of respected and and held up as sort of a key component and we're collective as opposed to sort of an individualist you know spread of that of that component and so I think that um, that, that all of that that term um, yeah all the stuff that comes with it um, you know as it's localized um, into in some capacity it always has a sort of globalized global connection but um, I think that sort of that, that those terms, um, and of course, I mean, part of that also comes down to what the parents might say is, you know, I have a teenager. If that person would would when the, you ask who are you, like what what label do you how you label yourself, that young person might choose one of many other categories besides that one too. That could be, you know, especially again, sort of very culturally, religiously, um, you name a sort of identity sort of category that would be the first one that would that would come to mind.
1: But I think a really interesting open question. I don't have any idea. I've seen tween used in like uh, UK and Australian press, right? So I think it has some anglophone purchase. There's also a way. Well, um, like British popular culture seems to like things like that, right? Sort of. Twee, kind twee of, um, yeah. yeah. I think that I think um, we have it sort of. It's, okay.
3: it's teen in between, but there's also a twee-ness yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. to it. Um,
1: but uh, but I think it would be really interesting if because teenager really is this powerful word, right? That has all sorts of reach um, and is and 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 expanded. Um, I don't think that tween. I, I mean, even in in the states, has has the same sort of reach. Um, and I think it's twee enough. My sense is that it, it won't in fifty years be what teenager is. I think it's a little bit too specific. Um, but I mean, it would be go back
3: to micro-bopper. Yeah, right. I think that I like that would be better myself. Um, well, do you remember, like, I had a magazine yeah. that was, I mean, it did, that term did last somewhat. I mean, I think, I don't know if Bop Magazine or Big Bop still exists, as like, as, but that, that magazine was like, still when I was like growing up was like a, a in the 80s, 90s, was like a thing. I don't know if that magazine title still exists anymore. Mm-hmm. It's like J-14, or there's like other, like new magazines come and go, but mm-hmm. Bop, you know did have a have a have a time there where it still sort of maintained itself in other mm-hmm. things beyond the 60s
0: well it makes me think too your question makes me think about the way in which like to say someone is a teenager is to make age a really integral part like really meaningful it really determines your identity it's like when we switched from saying some people have sex with people of other, you know, orientations to saying there are homosexuals. Like there are, it's a category, it's an identity, that's what you are, right? It's almost the same when we say teenager instead of just, I have a 14 year old. We're saying like, we think this age is one of the most salient and important aspects of this person's identity. So it kind of ups the ante on how much age distinctions matter in terms of the constitution of identity, I think. Mm -hmm.
3: Right. And also then like what, Again, sort of what the market is for that when you've made the category, what what you could sell to it now that you've defined it.
1: Right, but it's all. I mean, it's interesting. Historically, you have. Adolescent, right, which is this sort of medicalized term, like homosexual, um, which is is circulated and, and being used for a while before, and then teenager kind of comes in and replaces it, and the one is associated with consumer industries, and the other is associated with, like, development and and, and bodies and these other things. Yeah. Um, and I think with, with tweens, we have a, a variety of different words, right? Um, but, um, but, you know, the difference between like child and kid and, and, and other things. There's lots of words that mean lots of different things, right, mm-hmm. that all sort of still refer to age. Mm-hmm. It's like you can be an age in a lot of different ways.
4: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. I'm curious um, with the broader definition of tween, so girls and, and to the extent that, that this um, relates to boys as well, um, where you see this group of people feeling safe and also who, who you see them trusting. It's a very complicated world that they're all in, and um, just I'm really curious, uh, yeah, sort of across you know, whether it's, a, you know, you're saying the malls have gone away, and in some cases it's, be, you know, either the malls have gone away or people aren't letting their kids go to different places because they're helicoptering them or what, whatever the case may be. But with all these different dynamics that you've discussed tonight, I'm just curious where, where you really think they're in a place where they're You know, safe, and again, where where they um, where they find this feeling of trust?
3: I'd say that definition is social, um, so it depends on on it's relational. So, I mean, I think there are lots of people who would say that they. From, somebody from the outside might say they live in a safe space, but um, experience sort of bullying and, and don't know, don't have somebody to turn to. And kids who have resources, somebody who asks the question, um, who notices something different, who notices a kid is skipping, is isn't in school much. Um, so you have some kids who maybe have more people who are paying attention to their habits and routines, and the, and ones who aren't. Um, and I and I think that you have some people who, regardless of what's going on in their lives, um, have anxieties that could be related to um, what they hear on television about what pe- who people who look like them, um, what kind of neighborhoods they live in. You know, If you have Donald Trump repeatedly saying that where people live, people don't have jobs, and they're not safe, and they're you know, in danger constantly, um, the sort of internal idea of what that means for your self-worth or self-sense of safety, um, it's, it's, it's very sort of inter- whether or not that is reflective of a given sort of child's own sense of feeling well or safe or understood. Um, uh, but I think that the that the safety component is, uh, there's a, so Sonia Livingston, um, and sort of this is really Anthony Giddens, sort of a risk society that we live in, and sort of what, in what ways sort of risk and moral, we have the term moral panic, and that hasn't come up the whole time, mm-hmm. and I'm like kind of amazed, um, <laughs> about um, what, what people get worked up about Particularly, adults, when it comes to young people's engagement with media and technology. And young people can start to take on that language. You know, when they start to hear people say enough, oh, you know, it's not safe to, you know, be on that social networking site or it's not safe to whatever, that increasingly has meant that girls then might avoid spaces altogether. Um, So there's that sense of safety. Being rooted in some idea and not necessarily like statistics, but an idea, and then that leading to sort of barriers of other kinds of entry points. It's not really wasn't like one direct answer to your question. I realize, but uh, maybe think of all these sort of terms together.
1: Right. No. The last, the idea of moral panics, like kind of starting in the eighties, the idea of child safety became a really important sort of cultural topic, um, and um, there were important discussions of of, um, of things like child sexual abuse but there was also a sort of media focused moral panic um, about the idea of that sort of that 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 children were sort of constantly vulnerable to outside threats, right? The
3: kid on um, the milk carton.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and so just all of these images of, of victimized kids, um, which didn't reflect the right. sort of, like in fact, children are much safer uh, and much less susceptible to all sorts of um, violent and other sorts of crimes um, than they were a generation ago and a generation before that. Um, uh which interestingly moves in like inversely with discourses about child safety right. and and parents especially right like grown ups and children's lives constantly telling them that right. this isn't safe that isn't safe right like walking to school may not be safe right. going on the internet may not be right. safe um so it's a, it's an interesting question when a kid feels safe right because they 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 Maybe being told like the, the the sort of internet sexual predator is mostly a figment of like ABC's imagination, right? Like it, like you're literally in your room on a device. There's no person there who's um, and uh, I don't. I, it's laughing is not quite right, right? But it, but um, but the, the, these are these are not real threats in the just remarkably vast majority of actual kids' lives, right? Um, the, guns the, are. Absolutely, guns are. And, 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 and like the people, the actual people in kids' lives, right? Like family members are much likely to hurt you than a stranger. Um, or the like real clear and present threats are things like everyday bullying, right? Rather than sort of, right. sort of, sort of strangers outside. Um, and so it's, I think it's an interesting question. When do kids feel safe? And a lot of that has to do with how adults tell kids they feel to, whether to feel safe or not. And then going back to the marketing literature, the marketing work um, in some of the like marketing research, you get interesting reports about um, where the sort of category tween i think a lot of marketers understood it as being just aspirational right and so they were sort of very much about pushing the limits and then market researchers come back and they say wait 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 tweens also are invested in sort of safety and comfort and and being protected and so and you can actually get like 11 year olds to report to you that they they don't want to grow up too fast right so it's not just kids always want autonomy and independence and to some extent in the kind of cultural environment of the 90s and 2000s you have sort of kids taking on for themselves this language about safety and this language about child vulnerability. Um, and it's hard to separate out that stuff from from kind of real is the wrong word, right? But but from other forms of safety. So safety is a really fraught idea for children,
4: right? Well, I'm looking across media at trust, for instance. Are they trusting, you know,
1: if you look at is it, is it athletes, is it musicians, is it score, or the it- Explorer? It's the people in kids' lives. I mean, I think it's 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 always a good default and it and it's usually borne out of research, right? That like that when you're online, you're online with people that you know. When you ask about who you trust or who the main influences you have, right? Like the main influences in a kid's life are family. the people in their lives. Um, and so and and the media stuff is just always secondary to that.
0: That's kind of comforting, um. I have to say, as a parent to hear, I I think. Um, I guess. Um, I, I also feel like we have to flag Henry Jenkins, who created the Calm Forum and who has written so much about this, right, about how... Including
1: Phoebe yeah, Herman, yeah. Yeah, about
0: the video games and how as kids were getting increasingly penned in and told it wasn't safe to go out right. into the world where they used to rove around, but they could rove around in the yeah. virtual space yeah. of video games. Yeah. Yeah. My can't... PhD advisor. Okay. Oh, <laughs> but I also wanted to say, what about? I think also adults' anxiety about about new media. Like, I feel like as a a parent, I'm often like, I feel bad or anxious that my kid is using, do you know what I mean? And so I feel like there's also a way in which it's not just, I mean, this is not about physical safety, it's more just about like a free floating anxiety about the media itself and what kinds of effects it has on personal relationships. One of the reasons I love Tyler's work, could you tell them about, just really quickly, about your argument about iPods, about how they are not so much like making you go into yourself, but out
1: sometimes. Sure. So um, so so. Uh, Actually, cheap generic grocery store MP3 players more than iPods. But um, I um, uh, did some long-term ethnographic research in like two thousand six, two thousand seven, two thousand eight, um, with some elementary school kids in Vermont. Um, kind of thinking of mostly focused on music. And, and um, this was when MP3 players were, before smartphones, but were, were really expanding, and there were sort of more affordable versions, and so younger kids had them and could bring them to school. Um, and what you see very much with, with kids, and which I, what I think you continue to see, um, is that when kids listen to music, um, you know, if you're on the subway or on the bus, or, uh, and you're a grown-up or you're a college student, you listen to music, you have both earbuds in, right, and you're sort of listening by yourself, and the music, to some extent, is kind of separating you from other people. Um, but with the kids I worked with, it was always the case that you only ever listened with one ear. If you were at home or in the car with your parents, you might listen with both ears, right? Because social relationships, the relationships with the actual people in your lives are the things that really determine how media exists in your life, right? Um, but if you're in school, um, if you're waiting before school for school and you were listening to music, it would be with one ear in and the other ear dangling, even the though you're The other ear shared
3: with somebody else. Or right? exactly,
1: or the other ear shared with someone else, right? Um, And and most often, so you're always open to talk, you could be sitting at the lunch table. This was at this funny moment before teachers had caught on and banned this stuff. Um, (laughs) But you could be sitting at the lunch table listening to, you know, with a friend while also kind of gossiping and talking with other kids. Um, And I think that's important. And I think the main point of that is less about media and more about relationships, right? Like relationships are sort of always the first principle of any human, not just kids. Um, And the media stuff is always layered on top of that. and if there's a sort of causal direction, you can kind of start with the with the people in people's lives. Right?
0: Awesome, thank you. The essay is called "Earbuds Are for Sharing." Right? Are good for sharing. Are good for sharing.
5: Yeah. Hi. I wonder if you could um, going back to the idea of the tween as kind of a American culturally specific icon. Um, I wonder if you could talk a bit about that icon in relation to other culturally specific modes of considering adolescence. I'm thinking specifically here of shoujo uh, and shonen in Japanese culture, um, and I mean, you could talk, I guess, from marketing perspective, but also maybe from perspectives of um, kids these age reading. You know, Shonen Jump, for example, is a comment, is a really really popular um, magazine of comics, uh, Japanese comics um, that's now quite popular here in America as well as in Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, and shows like you know Sailor Moon or Dragon Ball Z were really popular in the late '90s, and they were specifically marketed when they were created to the shoujo shonen audience, which has a lot of Japanese cultural specificity to it. So I guess thinking about the tween, not just as sort of an American icon, but like with those other international forms of, um, you know, that age in mind.
3: Well, just even, you know, mobile technology, you know, far more widely adopted mobile phones adopted in Japan before the U.S. Um, and so then you had sort of cultures around like and sort of cuteness and, you know, phone accessories and phone sort of objects and, and uses of the camera phone, um, uh, uses of your know, graphics, emoji uh, or pre-emoji sort of emoticon sort of work. Um, there's a lot that American youth, uh, I think, do not realize that they have, you know, res- been, have been incorporated that, that sort of Japanese youth have. Um, innovated around, um, around cultural identity and personal technologies as well. So at least sort of the mobile aspect I can speak to in that.
4: Um,
1: Yeah, I think there's, I mean, there's a lot of, the question of, there's this fascinating uh, cultural influence, right? Sort of the idea, like cuteness um, um, in Japanese culture, Clearly references childhood, right? But when it gets imported into American culture, it even much more strongly references childhood, um, and um, and some and and sometimes even stops being visible as uh, as as Japanese, right? And becomes just sort of cuteness,
3: yeah. the sort of um, odorless, the culturally odorless yeah, sort of. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Um, but even I mean, going back, things like like Voltron was clearly modeled modeled on Japanese animation. A lot of those sort of 80s shows, or things like Power Ranger, power power. Well, Power Rangers for sure, but also um, the racer one, Speed Racer, Speed yeah. Racer, right? Um, so there's a long history of American animation, especially sort of borrowing from Japan. Um, and um, yeah, I'm not I'm not sure. I, there there are there are other forms. I mean, so now just sort of listing forms of cultural influence, but like somehow I think there's also something that's happened where now sometimes culturally specific markers of japanese can get coded as childish, right? Because in Japan, Sanrio. there's a sort of, yeah, absolutely.
3: Hello Kitty. Um, but then also Hello Kitty has her own sort of, there's a whole adult right. component. We won't go there, <laughs> but, uh, but that's a thing too
1: um so i'm and 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 then the question of sort of specifically tween right so one thing that also didn't come up that i think is interesting about the category tween is that it's um it sort of started as kind of further segmenting the kids market right sort of like creating new segmentations but then it really became kind of dominant and started to spread outward um so so media or consumer culture produced for for tweens, which was always seen by marketers as being like older kids, right, not the preschool set, um, then can be something that preschoolers can kind of aspire to, and then the tween stuff can kind of get coded young, And or in 2007, this kind of peak moment of tween culture, you had like High School Musical, which was sort of aged somewhat young, and Hannah Montana kind of in the middle, and the Jonas Brothers somewhat older, so you could have like a 15-year-old and a 4-year-old all loving music mm-hmm. from the same TV yeah. station. And and so the but the getting back to Japanese culture, um, things like Pokemon, right, like really problematize these age boundaries rather than like really investing in the strong age divisions. You have, you can buy a stuffed toy to snuggle with, and you can also play an expensive video game, right, that a six year old couldn't play but a 14 year old can. Um, there's
0: a Pokemon club at MIT, right, right? for MIT right. students. Right, and
1: everything is different now. Yeah. Like, we're, we're, we're past the tween moment and living past the Rubicon. <laughs> ah, this is all tween. history. Um, but so there's, I think there are really interesting things going on about the way specifically. Japanese sort of cultural products um, both like emphasize childishness but also break down some of the boundaries categories that we think of as existing in children's culture? I
3: will say one thing that I like wish like we could borrow but part of this also we haven't talked about this either but sort of the funding models for children's media and culture so you know you've you have a robust sort of national funding for children's you know media in in uh, in Japan that you have a a hemorrhaging, a sort of long-term undercutting of sort of public television in the U.S. But I was at a something called the Pre jeunesse, which is like sort of the, this every two-year um, sort of children's television festival, and Japan had the most awesome preschool television. It was like design thinking oriented, and it was like beautiful, and the music was rich, and like and. So it just like made me kind of sad that like we don't have that, and I like wish we, I could like import it and like spread it around because there's like really wonderful innovations, and in that. But again, this sort of partly goes down to what is sort of the um, the funding models for any of this stuff, um, and then what gets prioritized and under that um, financial model.
0: And I think it's really important to say in that regard that here in the United States, we did have federal funding for children's TV, right? With Sesame Street was, was partly federally funded, and all these amazing programs, Zoom, all these PBS programs. And just how sad it is that that funding, which was aimed at Really good social justice goals has really drained away. I mean,
3: there's still there's still stuff like all is not lost, but um, you know, thinking about and but I mean, so much of that was in reaction to um, Action for Children's Television sort of campaigning around again, sort of some moral panic sort of yeah, discourse true. that like funding then got tied to yeah. um, as well. So, um, but you know, just talking about sort of public television in general, we could sort of get into like what kind of what you know what's in the public interest. Um, and what's in private interest when it comes to content.
1: Well, also children's music um a lot of the sort of famous children's musicians, most notably Rafi, are Canadian because Canada has artist grants, right? And so so, um, a decent amount of the development of children's music is due to Canadian public funding.
0: Yeah. It's Um, really amazing if you go back and study the beginnings of like Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood and Sesame Street, how they were created by experts in collaboration with TV people. So psychologists, sociologists, like educators, you know, religious leaders. I mean, I think it's amazing to look back at that.
1: But also that developmentalism is so heavy-handed. Sometimes we need fewer uh, psychologists. I, I, I also
3: interned in the education research department at Sesame Street. Oh yeah. Uh, so we, we can talk about sort of um, the sort of pros and cons of some of that yeah, stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Interesting.
4: Uh,
2: my question was about um, literature and why you think tween is very much TV and talk about makeup and clothing, but not in children's literature. Where it's YA and middle
3: grade, and not really tween. Part of me thinks that sometimes stuff that gets associated with school becomes less um, part of the sort of leisure time. So just that that books, to some extent, have a sort of school connotation, and that's a that's a thing that's going that's always sort of attached to books. And and I think just from a you know a leisure purpose, there's there's um, somewhat of an inherent tension that will always sort of exist around that.
2: I, mean, I think that's interesting, but at the same time, didn't like why in middle grade and tween, didn't they kind of evolve kind of around the same time, though? Because there wasn't really middle grade in YA like 60 years ago or?
1: Right, so I think it's more like kids, uh, different categories are trying to define kids different ways. So it's not. That eight to twelve-year-olds don't read, right? Like I don't think I think it's that
3: girls do. Girls do tend to say that they like reading more than boys.
1: Sure, right. Um, but also, like reading is um, reading is not public, right? Like reading is something that you do alone and quiet, or at least we we do. Um, yeah. Right, right. Well. Sure. So, or or when reading is public, the identity that you're performing is student, right? Um, and so whereas like music listening, you, you can share your buds or you can play speakers. Um, like the way music as a medium works is is more public. But then also just historically, right? Like music is the the um, and, and TV is associated with the domestic family home, right? Like TV is not portable the way that music has long been. Um, and so even though TV is important, it usually happens in family spaces rather than peer spaces. Reading happens in school spaces, which are structured by teachers and other sort of institutions. And music listening, music is associated with peer culture, right? So if, if uh, you have a category that's trying to define people by an age and not by relationship with parents or by relationships with teachers, but by relationships with peers um, and to identify with other people who are the same age who might be strangers to you, right? Like you're 11 and being 11 in certain contexts, is salient, and if you live in New York, you you and an 11-year-old in Arizona might have that 11-year-oldness in common, um, right? Whereas if you read the same book, it might mean that you have really being a student in common. If you watch the same TV show, to some extent, it means you have the same sort of domestic situation in common, right? Not, not of course, not always. But so music is like structured in such a way to to. Um, to emphasize peer relationships, and not just peer relationships, but also kind of like horizontal identities as chronologically aged. Um, And then also music just historically in the United States, popular music specifically, is the thing that defined youth culture, right? The explosion of youth culture in the post-war period um, really focused on music, and and music was the most visible part of that. And so if you're a marketer and you already have existing models for how to define a new consumer um, uh, uh, group demographic. then you would go to that wheelhouse, right? Like um, uh, print literature, um, what defined like middle-class women in the 19th century, right, but so like you're not necessarily trying to like work on that model, you're trying to work on, on this other model. So I think it actually makes a lot of sense. I think it, it, um, that's the way music works in our culture. Do you think the creation of Kappa and uh, kind of breaking people off at age 13, did that, helped drive the concept of tweens as marketers suddenly couldn't use that media channel to reach that audience anymore, did that? So just quickly, so COPPA yeah. is the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, which is like 98, <laughs> is that too late? Um, 97, it was in, yeah. Um, and, and then Mitch, it's, had,
3: it's been revised based on like what the internet has become, like I think 2000. 2013, there we okay. go, um, was revised to reflect. I mean, that's a long gap. Like the, a lot happened on the internet yeah. <laughs> between those years. Uh, but yeah.
1: So, and so basically, it, it's it. Um uh, people were worried about privacy issues on the internet and advertisers collecting information. Um, and so the, the sort of legislative solution was to really lock down collecting information on children under 13 and have it sort of be totally open for people over 13. What's so, that
3: parental permission?
1: Right, so, so for kids need- under 13, a website can't ask them for personally identifiable information without like verified parental permission, which really structures and makes it hard to do research on kids under 13 and, um, and websites for kids under 13 um either don't exist or like or designed not to ask for certain types of information. It, it so seems sorry. that the rise of tweens is also about that same time.
3: And there's different genres that come up. So like adver gaming is a is something that um does, you know, does run rampant. Um, uh, you have sort of, you know, the rise of, you know, the the sort of McDonald's game, the online sort of, you know, community, uh, or not community, but the um, the sort of branded site, um, so there's lots of opportunities that you know, with or without you know, with COPA still um, that you still have uh, sort of sort of this branded online content that is very much driven towards that that sort of community.
1: I think it's an interesting question. My inclination is that it's more of a coincidence that 13 is a. Like, there's a reason that we define tween the way we do, that sort of 13 is a meaningful number. Although, um, as you guys said at the beginning, tween is an amorphous term. As yeah, right, absolutely. Right. Um, right, and older older tweens that, um, um, are on, so are not, not officially allowed to be on Facebook because Facebook collects personally identifiable information from them, but they are often sophisticated enough to lie about their age or even enlist their parents in lying about their age. And so sort of even the kappa number um, uh, boundaries are... are amorphous. Um, But I also think that despite the real emphasis in like the way we talk about media on the internet and new media, um, I really think that TV and music and old media are actually are more important, not just to kids, but sort of to everyone, that that new media, a lot of that is layered on top of it. And so regulating the internet would still be sort of regulating like a second or third kind of um, uh, like tier kind of um, uh, medium, right? And so, and the things that like so, I I think tween did peak in the late '90s and early 2000s, mid 2000s. Um, but really, on in music and, and TV and the internet is kind of um, secondary to that. But it is it's a I, I, that's that said, I don't I think it's a question that's worth following up on because it does line up in interesting ways. And I would be curious how. Um, these companies like Disney and Nickelodeon and other companies that were really invested in targeting this group right at that time um, and also were investing in, in the internet, um, how, they, um, how how those regulatory changes may have filtered into their whole strategy, right, and not just their online strategy. It's, it's interesting.
6: Mm-hmm.
0: So I, are, do you have a question? Yeah, oh great.
2: Very quickly, um, nice so audience. the uh, things you were saying about the app musically uh, yeah. was really interesting. It um, reminded me of my experiences teaching ninth graders, which is a little older than the tween age bracket. They're like 14, 15, so they're a little past it. And what struck me when teaching them is they were already too old to know like what was cool. Mm-hmm. Um, they were past that point, and it seems to me that, that a, gener- a generation of memes or what's considered cool in a media sense, what's popular with music, I'm thinking of like the TZ Anthem challenge, like comes from the tween age bracket. I was wondering if you guys like, could talk, speak to what tweens generate in terms of what's relevant, um, especially with like, what's relevant on the internet and in the media.
3: So one sort of genre that is very, I think, tween-driven is unboxing videos. Uh, if people are familiar with I see some nods. Uh, Of uh, so unboxing videos, uh, unboxing um, used to actually, I think it started with like uh, Apple products. So, like, that the packaging was itself so beautiful and wonderful that people then, like, with this new YouTube around, um, would like unbox on screen, would sort of display all of the sort of gadgets and gizmos and like all the pieces of wrapping and stuff, whatever. But, um, but there's this whole hugely financially lucrative. A field of unboxing videos, and, and what those videos are, and, and it's largely kids who are filmed, um, and you know parents are involved in sort of the filming of it, uh, taking like ordinary, not like Apple products, but like Play-Doh or like anything really, and take opening the box on camera and describing all of the bits of it. It is like looking through a catalog like the cat, like a catalog that you might, but it's just the YouTube version of that. But you also get added things like um, there's, you know, somebody up here who's presenting the toy to you. You get um, the the sensory sort of sounds that are appealing. It sounds like, un, like unwrapping presents. It might. There's uh, Jackie Marsh, who's a, a, a British researcher who's been doing a bunch of research on this like, whole genre. And then you get like, adults to, to kind of piggyback off of Ali's. Uh, there's a whole genre of adults who are now sort of making their own unboxing videos that are based on the genre that like, tweens were creating um, to sort of share you know, the experience of, of commercialism and sort of belonging. But what's interesting is that you don't have to buy the toy to watch the video. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to go buy it, but there's the window shopping component of it.
2: It's really interesting because it seems like with the internet there's and with apps, there's this disentangling of tween culture from the financial component that sort of created it in the first place. Because mm-hmm. so, so much of the internet is free.
7: Mm-hmm. Like Musical.ly
2: is a free app, and you can post things on YouTube for free. Right. Um, I don't know. It just seems like there's some sort of freedom there. F- like beyond financial freedom, just like they can be themselves and create culture.
1: Right, but TV is free too, right? I mean, your parents might pay for your cable prescriptions. I think we unpack
3: the infrastructure of of what gets paid for. But
1: but so, but like, or like unboxing videos are in the same way that TV is just built entirely on consumer sales, right? That are then being advertised on TV. Unboxing videos are like literally about buying stuff, right? So it sort of depends on a culture of buying stuff. Um, They are amazing. There are these Pokemon ones, like Pokemon cards, where someone will just have like a box of like a thousand Pokemon. Cards and just open them and say, Here's this one, here's this one there, and it goes on for like three hours. They're, yeah. they're tremendous. Yeah,
3: yeah. And, and there's like, I mean, but they're also, I should say, like they're also crossed over where we talked about in, in I'm teaching a, a class on youth and communication technology right now, so some of the stuff, the examples are at the top of my head, but um, there's, uh, there's sort of young people who are then paid by these companies to, I'm forgetting. The exact name of, of there's somebody who's like a, a child was a millionaire, purely based on their unboxing videos, and, and I'm blanking on on the person's name at this point. Um, but that they were then hired by Good Morning America to unbox the new Star Wars uh, uh, because they had their own kind of cultural cachet and there'd be viewership to come on to Good Morning America and unbox the new like. Um, Millennium Falcon, um, like Lego sort of set. So, the, so yeah,
1: I would say though that if unboxing videos are associated with tweens, then then this is evidence for the continued marginality of kids in culture, right? Because unboxing videos are not actually mainstream, right? Like they're they're this like completely like. Just bonkers internet phenomenon, right? Like, um, but then they appear
3: on Good Morning America.
1: Yeah, but he, but Good Morning America is always chasing niche things, right? Like they. Um, but uh, so so on the one hand, yeah, absolutely, right. Um, um, but on the other hand, so it's the way that the internet, like with meme culture especially, works, like. Kind of actually depends on having like sort of marginal niches that can generate things that then sort of escape, right? Places like 4chan or something that have their own kind of insider jokes that then escape out. Um, and um, no, but I mean, the logic might be similar, right? Where you have kids making these videos and then that sort of becomes a genre that, that, that leaks out. But more broadly, right? I think the idea of kids' influence in, in uh, culture and especially media and consumer culture, um, um, and so not just tweens, but sort of young people generally. Um, the whole idea of social media as a thing, right, um, um, is uh, some of the first examples. Well, so Facebook was Harvard, but in the 90s you had a. Uh, um a site, Catherine Montgomery talks about a site called like Bolt or Buzz or Boom or something like that. There was like literally a social site for teenagers and the whole point of it was about getting teenagers online with their friends and then getting them to be really specific about their consumer tastes and their family and like giving the names of everyone. So it's all about collecting data exactly like Facebook is. Um, so the idea that young people's peer relationships are really important to them, and marketers and consumer industries can provide platforms for those peer relationships to take place, right, and then extract data from the interactions that happen um, and, and use it to then sell consumer products, um, is very much originally a marketing strategy targeted to teenagers and young people, and that's now like the world we live in, right? Like that's this sort of, you know, multi-billion dollar um, social media world. And so that business model, which now applies to grandmothers and, and, you know, 40-year-olds was a business model that was developed to target young people. And so then does that mean... I I mean, I I think the actual lesson from that is that peer relationships matter to a lot more people than just young people, and marketers were overemphasizing that with young people, and it's a a successful strategy. But another version, another way to think about it, is that sort of, Young people's investment in peer relationships and sort of and 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 social life and these things um, has expanded outward to be a sort of like dominant way that media works, right? Whereas in the '80s, media would have really been you and your nuclear family watching TV in the 2000s and, and, and 2010s, um, there's this idea of constantly sharing, which is this idea of how social relationships work that comes from youth culture, right? The idea of friend itself is really associated with young people. Um, and I think there are, or the, the media mix, right? The idea of cross-marketing. So, um, so, you know, cross-marketing has happened in lots of, or franchising, right? Um, in in uh lots of industries but really the sort of like it it really develops and becomes mature in things like um the 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 sort of toy based t- tv shows um the hasbro tv shows like he-man or something where it's really the tv the toy company that's like developing the intellectual property and actually paying to produce and write these things and kind of just handing it over to the network. Um, And then you get things like Pokemon, right, which are these sort of media mixes. Now you have
3: Pokemon Go. Yeah,
1: absolutely. (laughs) But so with cards and with video games and with TV shows and all these other things. Um, And so, and now more and more you have um, sort of franchising happening in um, kind of mainstream adult culture, right, like is Star Wars adult or not, but things like Star Wars, right, which has like book series and movies and toys and video games um, and um, and and lots of other or the idea of like celebrities making um, like also making movies so you can sell a CD and you can sell a DVD and you can sell concert tickets and you can sell, um, you know, the idea of like uh, pop stars merchandising, right? That's a response to the decline of the music industry. Um, you know, merch t-shirts were not as important to rock stars in the 70s. They existed, but now it's like central to the business model of being a pop star. Um, and I think you can plausibly see that as a business model that develops out of, um things like the sort of cross-marketing and youth culture where selling toys and selling and sort of this brand being everywhere. Um, so anyway, so I, think, I actually think there's a really interesting story about how sort of things that are originated in kids' culture ex- expand out in, in lots of different ways, including unboxing videos. Um.
4: Yeah? I, I was just gonna say, um, I think it's worth noting that there's a very well-respected kids' marketing research firm called Smarty Pants that every year does a brand study on the top brands that kids love and they just released their findings for this, for the 2016 and the number one brand that kids in America love is YouTube. Huh. Uh, More than Disney, Oreo, m and Apple, Playstation, every, you know, brand. You so I, I would say that it's, unboxing is not sort of a fringe thing, it's a very uh, central thing, especially to kids that YouTube is their number one source for content and uh, OTT media in general, I would say, is the new TV. So it's worth checking out. It's free. The, the, um, the results of the study are free if you want to check out Smart Accounts. It's like AskSmartAccounts.com, but first time YouTube has ever been number one. That's fascinating. Yeah, it's, it's a big deal.
0: Thank you for bringing that up. Well, I think we should conclude not to sound too much like a presidential debate person, but I was wondering if we could just end by you each saying a question that <laughs> you're still We didn't plan
1: this. This, is, this is like this. I know. Chris this is Wallace, a so, surprise.
0: Yeah. I'm like the Chris <laughs> what's a schmuck. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So a question that's still motivating your research about tweens, sure. but you're still interested in exploring.
3: Yeah. For me, it's just what does it mean to be social? What does it mean to do social? Um, I'm interested in a population of young people, kids on the autism spectrum, who get very often defined as being um, as having a deficit in social skills or social capacities, and and I'm much more interested in how do they make social, how do they do social in their different kinds of environments, and um, in what way can we can we build worlds that support kind of a longevity of being um, participating in some way in the sort of public sphere.
0: Beautiful. Thank you. And Tyler.
1: Um, I'm interested in like tweens as being kind of a historical moment like that maybe is in the past, right? Like so there's still kind of maybe an analogy to sort of teen culture, right? Like there's a moment in the kind of post-war period when we can see this thing happening in which like a lot of people were talking about it and which adults really cared about it. And then it stuck around, right? And the term became important. and, and, and so it's the recent history, but the possibility that sort of the, the, the tween was a thing that happened. Yeah. Um, and it like, established some categories and some ways of thinking, um, and definitely some sort of market logics. And those will stick around. Um, but they may, not be, they may not be the same thing anymore. Yeah, um,
0: so like why did it happen then, and what does it mean that it's kind of diminished, potentially? Right. Yeah, fascinating. You guys have been an amazing audience. Sure, yeah. Thank you so much for all your questions.